This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. An incredibly significant day in terms of global politics and in terms of humanity, really. The International Court of Justice has ruled that there is a plausible case that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza and has therefore delivered an order um, that it does not commit genocide in Gaza. We'll be explaining all of the key elements to that ruling. I've got a great guest lined up as well. Um, I will be joined by Aaron Bastani in the second half of the show. Um, to give you a, a view ahead um, to what we'll be discussing later, we'll look at Israel's response to the ICJ decision, the Western leaders that have been utterly shamed by the ruling, and how the Labour Party, um, you've probably seen this clip on social media, reacted, I think, in the most appalling way um, to someone who has had family dying in Gaza and who was protesting against their positioning. Stay tuned for all of that. Let's go straight into the main event this evening. The International Court of Justice has delivered its interim ruling on the genocide case brought against Israel by South Africa. The 15 international judges plus two ad hoc judges from Israel and South Africa have now found that Israel has been committing acts that could amount to genocide in Gaza. And it ordered Israel to adopt a series of provisional measures to protect Palestinians in the Strip from further harm. It's a very big deal. And this was South African Foreign Minister Naledi Panda after the court handed down its judgment. This case uh, was very much about international bodies ensuring that they exercise their responsibility to protect us all as global citizens. All member states of the United Nations have attached their signatures to a range of instruments. But when lives are threatened, these instruments are not brought to bear. And South Africa had the view that we could not stand idly by and continue to observe the killing of thousands of Palestinian citizens who had no role in the awful act of hostage-taking and killing that was uh, done by Hamas. Now, that statement that South Africa could not stand idly by should serve as a damning indictment of Western politicians in relation to Gaza and the Gaza war. And this emergency ruling has gone a long way to vindicate South Africa. Now, let's go through some of the ruling in more detail. The judgment, of course, is only the first part of a much longer process to determine whether Israel is in fact committing genocide in Gaza. At this stage, the court only had to decide whether Israel's actions are potentially genocidal. And the first significant dispute the judges had to rule on was whether the dispute between South Africa and Israel even concerned the Genocide Convention. The Israeli judges had argued that they were simply acting in self-defense and thus the case should be thrown out altogether. Now, this was the court's verdict on that particular dispute, um, read out by ICJ President Joan Donoghue. In the court's view, at least some of the acts and omissions alleged by South Africa to have been committed by Israel in Gaza appear to be capable of falling within the provisions of the Convention. In light of the following, the court concludes that, prima facie, it has jurisdiction, pursuant to Article 9 of the Convention, to entertain the case. Given this conclusion, the court considers that it cannot accede to Israel's request that the case be removed from the general list. So Israel's first request for the case to be thrown out, the court saying, no, very um, strongly, this will not be thrown out. We do have jurisdiction over this. Um, now, genocide has a very particular meaning. So according to the Genocide Convention, it's defined as, quote, acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group. Um, so the court had to decide um, you know, whether the Palestinians in Gaza represented such a group and whether um, there was plausibly a genocide going on there. The Palestinians appear to constitute a distinct national, ethnical, racial or religious group and hence a protected group within the meaning of Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. The court observes that, according to United Nations sources, the pa Palestinian population in the Gaza Strip comprises over 2 million people. Palestinians in the Gaza Strip form a substantial part of the protected group. 
The court notes that the military operation being conducted by Israel following the attack of 7 October 2023 has resulted in a large number of deaths and injuries, as well as massive destruction of homes, the forcible displacement of the vast majority of the population, and extensive damage to civilian infrastructure. While figures relating to the Gaza Strip cannot be independently verified, recent information indicates that 25,700 Palestinians have been killed, over 63,000 injuries have been reported, over 360 housing units have been destroyed or partially damaged, and approximately 1.7 million persons have been internally displaced. Now, in the ruling, the court based its decision on lots of independent evidence provided by international agencies, including many statements made by UN officials. In this passage, um, the judge is quoting the Commissioner General of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Overcrowded and unsanitary UNRWA shelters have become home to more than 1.4 million people. They lack everything from food to hygiene to privacy. People live in inhumane conditions where diseases are spreading, including among children. They live through the unlivable with the clock ticking fast towards famine. The plight of children in Gaza is especially heartbreaking. An entire generation of children is traumatized and will take years to heal. Thousands have been killed, maimed, and orphaned. Hundreds of thousands are deprived of education. Their future is in jeopardy with far-reaching and long-lasting consequences. And we've become used to Israeli officials trashing anything said by, by UN agencies. So in making use of UN evidence so extensively, the court is showing they don't agree. You know, when Israel is there sort of trashing these UN agencies, saying they're all Hamas, no, the court is taking those statements incredibly seriously, so much that they're quoting them in these rulings. Now, passages like that, read out by top judges, I think gives moral force to the Palestinian cause in Gaza. Of course, though, this case was not just about highlighting key testimony, right? It wasn't just an argument in the airwaves. The judges were there to assess a request for a provisional order, and provisional orders are only required when a people are at immediate and ongoing risk of genocide. On that note, the judge said this. The court considers that the civilian population in the Gaza Strip remains extremely vulnerable. It recalls that the military operation conducted by Israel after 7 October 2023 has resulted inter alia in tens of thousands of deaths and injuries and the destruction of homes, schools, medical facilities, and other vital infrastructure, as well as displacement on a massive scale. The court notes that the operation is ongoing and that the Prime Minister of Israel announced on 18 January 2024 that the war, I quote, will take many more long months, end of quote. At present, many Palestinians in the Gaza Strip have no access to the most basic foodstuffs, potable water, electricity, essential medicines, or heating. The World Health Organization has estimated that 15% of the women giving birth in Gaza Strip are likely to experience complications and indicates that maternal and newborn death rates are expected to increase due to the lack of access to medical care. In these circumstances, the court considers that the catastrophic humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip is at serious risk of deteriorating further before the court renders its final judgment. So now we've heard the court assessing they have jurisdiction over the case and that there is an urgent need for intervention, right? because there is a plausible case that genocide is going on and that there is a risk that it could continue. What intervention they would make is a different question, though. And South Africa had asked the court to force Israel to call an immediate ceasefire, But despite saying there was a risk of genocide in Gaza, the court didn't make that order. Instead, it imposed these conditions on Israel. Israel must, in accordance with its obligations under the Genocide Convention, in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention, in particular, A, killing groups, members of the group, B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. And D, imposing measures 
intended to prevent births within the group. The court recalls that these acts fall within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention when they are committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part the group as such. The court further considers that Israel must ensure with immediate effect that its military forces do not commit any of the aforementioned acts. The court is also of the view that Israel must take measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to the members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. That last point about preventing and punishing incitement to genocide was especially damning, given the judge had previously read out quotes from Israel's President Herzog and Defense Minister Gallant as examples of potentially genocidal language. Right? So if, if they're saying this should be punished and you're citing the president as having made um, potentially genocidal statements, this seems incredibly damning to me. And the court also ruled that Israel must allow more humanitarian aid into Gaza and that Israel must report back to the ICJ in a month to show evidence they are complying with the provisional order. I think that report back process is very significant here. So where does this leave the situation in Gaza? Well, the failure to call for a ceasefire has disappointed many, but on the whole, this was undoubtedly a significant win for South Africa. And speaking in The Hague, the South African foreign minister suggested that while a ceasefire wasn't explicitly mentioned in the court's judgment, its necessity was implied. In any way, shape, or form. How do you transport humanitarian aid without a ceasefire? Exactly. How would you provide uh, water, access to energy? How do you ensure uh, that those who are injured uh, have uh, health care and so on? Uh, Without a ceasefire, uh, none of these things uh, can be done. So if you read the order by implication, a ceasefire must happen. Yes. The order cannot be implemented in any way, shape or form without a ceasefire. It's as simple as that. The court's ruling is final and there is no right of appeal, but it doesn't have the power to enforce its order. If Israel doesn't obey, it will be down to the international community to seek enforcement through the United Nations, where many of the Western powers protecting Israel have a veto. The United States, the UK, France, namely the United States, tends to be and the nation that uses its veto. The UK often abstains. Very cowardly move, I think. Um, earlier today, I spoke to Omar Shakir, Israel and Palestine Director at Human Rights Watch. It's absolutely a watershed ruling that I think has the potential to provide protection for Palestinians in Gaza who, have, who are facing starvation and unprecedented daily killings at a level we haven't seen in the modern history of Israel-Palestine. The court not only threw out Israel's attempt to throughout the case, so it allowed the case to proceed, saying that this was a sufficient um, uh, dispute as per the terms of the court's jurisdiction. But it also found that the claims that um, South Africa put forward um, regarding uh, Israel committing genocide against Palestinians were plausible. So it provided uh, a basis for the court to move forward. And it put in place binding, uh, legally binding, provisional measures, including measures that order Israel to not commit genocidal acts, acts in violation of the Geneva Convention, to allow in um, humanitarian aid to restore basic services and to take other steps in order to um, protect Palestinians in Gaza from further atrocities. These are really significant rulings. And now it's up to states, including Israel's allies, to ensure that they are enforced. So on sort of the nature of the orders that have been imposed on Israel, on the surface, on the face of it, it can seem somewhat confusing because they've been told, don't do any harm to the group at risk of genocide, which is Palestinians in Gaza. But at the same time, they haven't sort of agreed to South Africa's request to demand a ceasefire. And those two things can seem a bit inconsistent. How can it be that you say, don't do any harm to the Palestinians, but also um, you can continue the war? Those two things seem somewhat inconsistent to me. I don't think they're inconsistent at all, actually. I mean, generally, what provisional measures are is they're the court's attempt to put in place steps that allow the case to be adjudicated on the merits and and do not cause further harm to the affected population. Now, the court did not have the power to issue a ceasefire because not all parties to the armed conflict are in court. Hamas is not a state. This is a dispute between two states. Um, instead, the court said, in essence, do not commit 
genocide or genocidal acts and ensure that the Palestinian people um, have protection, um, have access to aid and food. And so that's has a very close nexus to the underlying claims in the case. So while they did not you know, order a ceasefire, um, you know, it's similar to how the court ruled in the Myanmar Gambia case, where similarly, they took measures to protect the Rohingya amid, um, you know, the very serious abuses they were facing. I presume sort of the argument we'll make here is that while they've been told not to harm the group at risk of, of genocide, it sort of has this clause, take all measures within its power. And I suppose Israel will probably say, well, it's not within our power to not harm um, the civilians of, of Gaza. I'm using their talking points, of course, because Hamas use the civilians of Gaza as, as human shields. And therefore, and um, we've been complying with this all along, it's just not within our power to not kill Palestinians in Gaza. It, it, do you think that that's sort of the kind of argument they'll be making now? I don't think so, because there was a second order, because there was the, the language you read, but there was another order saying not to commit um, genocidal acts. And even if Hamas is using human shields, an allegation that um, you know has not been really substantiated by the Israeli government, um, that does not erase Israel's duty to avoid unlawfully disproportionate or indiscriminate attacks. Um, you know, even if Hamas is embedded in civilian areas, that's not a carte blanche, uh, a green light for the Israeli government to um, you know fire at will. They must comply with the requirements of international humanitarian law. And um, more critically, I think we're focusing now on the air strikes port portion of, of, of this. But remember that the Israeli government is um, willfully obstructing aid from reaching all parts of Gaza. They have sealed their crossings. They have cut electricity and water. There, there is no similar defense uh, around human shields to those abuses. And the court re recited very powerfully statements from the Israeli government officials setting out those facts, as well as warnings from the UN, UN experts, um, the World Health Organization regarding the serious risk of Palestinians in Gaza face. They have no defense to those sorts of allegations as, um, you know, as they might have in airstrikes, which, which I've said even there is not legally sufficient to uh, meet their duties. And what will happen now? I mean, how can this judgment be used to protect the people of Palestine? I mean, obviously, the, the ICJ doesn't have a sort of corresponding police force to implement their ruling. So what will happen now? How will this be implemented if it can be implemented? They're legally binding. So as a matter of law, Israel must comply with this order. The court has asked Israel within 30 days to report back on their compliance with the order. South Africa will have a chance to point to non-compliance. Um, with that order, uh, the order is sent to the Security Council. Certainly, the Security Council could take further enforcement action, but given the politics there, that may not be likely imminently. So it's really up to states to use all forms of their leverage, including embargoes, sanctions, trade relations, um, arms dealing, trade, um, in order to ensure compliance with this ruling. And to that uh, extent's been great already to see today um, statements by Germany, by the EU, um, bodies that certainly have been um, very friendly to Israel saying that they expect compliance with that ruling. And if Israel, should Israel not comply in the days ahead, um, we, we would expect states to take enforcement action into their own hands and use their forms of leverage to compel enforcement. What I'm just somewhat unclear about is, is how will it be proven that they are not sort of complying with this. I, obviously, reporting back in 30 days, either you do that or you don't do that. But I can imagine that Israel, as they've been doing for the past you know, 100 or so days, they always find some kind of reason why, yeah, on the face of it, this might look like it's genocidal. But there is some reason, there is some talking point that we can feed to Joe Biden, that we could feed to the German government, where they can sort of say, oh, no, we're, we're still okay to, to give them aid and to give them weapons, et cetera. What, what stops that from happening? Look, I mean, the court can find that the Israeli government has not um, complied with the provisional orders and it could order different orders. It can make different requests. And some of it is re re and, and they've shown the court that they don't buy the Israeli government documents. They dismissed many of them. And if in a month we're in a situation in which there continues to be starvation rampant in Gaza, where aid missions are not being allowed to reach northern Gaza, where medicine is not being allowed in or hospitals are under siege, you well could see a situation where the court, um, you know, takes further action uh, in terms of provisional measures based on that. Similarly, um, you know, when it comes to airstrikes, certainly 
Um, the ruling wasn't as specific, certainly, as it was on the aid requirements, but certainly the court could find, um, you know, that the Israeli government has failed to comply, for example, if, um, you know, if there are certain other um, acts uh, that, as has been reported, heavy duty weapons in densely populated areas, clear examples of unlawful strikes that, that the court may well in 30 days review those orders. And obviously, all of this will be relevant to the ruling on the merits, which while it will take more time, probably several years, um, the court will certainly look. Israel's been put on notice. So the court will certainly consider um, its actions up until today, but 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 also its actions in the weeks ahead. That's important to understand, actually, because I sort of had had in my mind that there were sort of these two timescales. One was this provisional ruling, and then was the ruling on merits, which is, you know, years down the line. But you're sort of saying there will be this sort of continuous process whereby Israel isn't marking its own homework, because this will keep going back um, to the judges at the International Court. Um, could I ask you to talk about the, the obligations that this ruling sort of poses for other states? Obviously, the UK, where we are, the United States, has been giving pretty much unambiguous support to, to Israel, both militarily, both diplomatically and financially. What does this ruling say about their decision to do that and their sort of continuing or, or, or their ability to continue do that to do that while while remaining within the law. I think to your first point, yes, we're going to proceed on two tracks. There will continue to be this oversight by the world's court on the provisional measures as the hearing on the merits continues. But to your second question, I mean, the world is right now on notice. The world's highest court has said it is plausible that um, the Israeli government is committing genocide, a very serious crime. Um, states have a duty to ensure non. Um, complicity and grave abuses. So I think states must evaluate all forms of engagement with the Israeli government to ensure non-complicity in this crime. Providing weapons makes one risks complicity in these serious abuses. So there should be a complete arms embargo imposed on the Israeli government, not just because of today's ruling. There should have been one uh, imposed long ago because the risks of serious abuse were quite clear. But this should add extra impetus on the urgency for all states to uh, suspend weapons so long as the abuses continue. That includes the United States, that includes the United Kingdom, that includes Germany, that includes also states that supply weapons to Palestinian armed groups and Hamas. That duty is crystal clear. And the fact that the world's court uh, has proceeding with this case finds the allegations plausible puts everybody on notice. And certainly the UK, you know, will be evaluated on its actions again to date, but but even maybe more so in the days ahead. When you say it will be evaluated for its actions, will that be by the International Court of Justice or will this be by national courts? I mean, how would the enablers of Israel's potential genocide sort of be, be held to account? The issue of um, third party state responsibility is not um, yet in these original, in these orders. These orders are very clearly about the Israeli government's actions. But already there's a legal suit that's been brought in the United Kingdom regarding UK arms provisions to Israel. Um, certainly these proceedings could be brought there. There's a case today being heard in the United States regarding potential US complicity with arms. Again, these issues could be brought there. And let's not forget two other things. One is that the International Court of Justice next month We'll be hearing an, a request for an advisory opinion regarding the consequences of Israel's prolonged occupation. And the court is specifically being asked about third state responsibility. So these two cases, while separate, this is a dispute over genocide brought by South Africa. The other is a UN request for uh, an advisory opinion. There could be some overlap there because third states could directly be addressed. And while that won't be binding in the way that this ruling is binding, because it's advisory, it still could add further weight to efforts for compliance with the law. And again, let's not forget that beyond national courts, the International Criminal Court does have a formal investigation. And again, it could look at criminal accountability for the perpetrators um, of these actions. As we've got lots of you watching, um, now is also a good time to remind you that Navarra Media is funded by our viewers, by our supporters. If you are already a financial supporter of Navarra Media, thank you so much. If not, please do consider going to navarramedia.com slash support. The link is in the description to this show. Straight on to the next aspect of this story. Israel has been found to be potentially committing a genocide by the International Court of Justice, and that ruling for any country 
should be a moment of intense shame. But Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't do shame. Here was his response. Israel's commitment to international law is unwavering. Equally unwavering is our sacred commitment to continue to defend our country and defend our people. Like every country, Israel has an inherent right to defend itself. The vile attempt to deny Israel this fundamental right is blatant discrimination against the Jewish state, and it was justly rejected. The charge of genocide leveled against Israel is not only false, it's outrageous, and decent people everywhere should reject it. On the eve of the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, I again pledge as Israel's Prime Minister, never again. Israel will continue to defend itself against Hamas, a genocidal terror organization. On October 7th, Hamas perpetrated the most horrific atrocities against the Jewish people since the Holocaust, and it vows to repeat these atrocities again and again and again. Our war is against Hamas terrorists, not against Palestinian civilians. We will continue to facilitate humanitarian assistance and to do our utmost to keep civilians out of harm's way, even as Hamas uses civilians as human shields. We will continue to do what is necessary to defend our country and defend our people. The idea that Benjamin Netanyahu has any kind of commitment to international law is just a joke. And it's not actually just, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, right? Whoever's been in power in Israel, they have been, since 1967, pursuing, overseeing, actively implementing the longest-running occupation, the the longest-running illegal occupation in the world right now, right? The UN says Israel should go back to its 1967 borders. That's a UN resolution which Israel has consistently ignored. The UN also has a resolution saying that the settlements are illegal. Israel has ignored those, right? The UN also has a resolution saying Palestinians have a right to return. The Israelis have ignored that, right? So Israel historically has had no commitment to international law, also not a member of the International Criminal Court. What might they be afraid of? Why might Netanyahu not want to be held to account? Why why might he not want to stand in the dock and and speak about his responsibility for what's going on in Palestine? I'd say because he's probably got a, a decent idea that he's guilty of quite a lot, right? Netanyahu's response to the ruling was, of course, the most significant um, that we heard today as he runs the Israeli government. But the most grotesque response came from his cabinet colleague, National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir. And he said, the decision of the anti-Semitic court in The Hague proves what was already known. This court does not seek justice, but rather the persecution of Jewish people. They were silent during the Holocaust, and today they continue the hypocrisy and take it another step further. Now, it's very important to note here, the International Court of Justice was founded in 1945, right? It was in part as a response to the Holocaust. It could not have intervened in the Holocaust. It did not exist. On Twitter, Ben Gavir um, was also active. He posted, the Hague Schmeg. Wow. I'm joined now by Aaron Bastani. These reactions from Israeli politicians, Netanyahu, oh, of course, we've got We've got the utmost commitment to international law, but we're going to keep on doing what we're doing. And then his national security minister, the Hague Schmeig, who cares? Who cares what they say? Who cares if they said that there's a a plausible case that we're committing genocide? Michael, for people watching or listening to this, just imagine if uh, Dmitry Medvedev or Vladimir Putin uh, did that tweet in the immediate aftermath of the ICJ making a certain ruling against them. The Hague Schmeig, you know, not even saying that you're wrong, or I disagree, but actually trivializing the entire process of international law and accountability. And the idea that nation states have to adhere to certain rules. Now, you might expect Putin to do it, um, but clearly, you know, our political class and much of the media would subsequently respond with the rightful claim that this betokens a man who is illiberal, undemocratic, a monster. Uh, And yet Ben Gavir can do precisely that, and it's a country that we're arming, giving political support to maintain trade, extensive trade ties with, there seems to be a different set of rules here, uh, doesn't there? In relation to Benjamin Netanyahu, he's saying that Israel is being treated so differently to the rest of the world. If any other country on earth was attacked, it would defend its own borders. Here's the thing, Michael. Israel isn't like any other country or nearly any other country because it's not actually clear what its international borders are or what it wants them to be. You know, I've repeatedly been asked, well, surely if you were a a Jewish person and you lived in Israel, given what happened on October 7th, you would want strong borders. 
Sure, have strong militarized borders, but have the borders. They don't have borders. That border between the Gaza Strip and, and southern Israel isn't a border per se. It's all Israel because it's, it's occupied. The West Bank is not really a border. Uh, and Hamas, by the way, weren't operating in the West Bank. They were coming out of Gaza. So, you know, there's a, a deep fundamental duplicity with what, with what Benjamin Netanyahu is saying. First, you're absolutely right to say he doesn't give two hoots about international law. He's quite open about the basis of Israeli policy under his government is might makes right. You know, absolutely everything else is, is uh, of secondary importance at best. That's the first issue. And then th this idea about borders, we have to protect our borders. You're in the entire basis of this political question is the fact you won't have international borders. The world is saying you are illegally settling a certain territory. Could you please return to pre-1967 borders? And you won't. You know, if Israel did that and subsequently militarized their borders, I mean, you know, I don't like militarized borders. It's not great to have, you know, uh, barbed wire and uh, towers and gum guns everywhere. But, I, you know, I can understand it, like the demilitarized zone in Korea. I'd understand it. It would be a coherent statement for Netanyahu to make, but that isn't that isn't what they're doing. And Michael, look, th these people can say what they like. Ben Gavir, by the way, Ben Gavir is absolutely the worst possible expression of a deeply toxic society, which Israel is. You know, he's one of these two political parties which won't even let women stand in elections. Um, and here's a question, really, for for people that are supporting Israel right now, whether they're British. Uh, German, Dutch, American. What kind of international order do you want in the 21st century? Do you want countries to be able to do this and say, hey, Schmeg, you know, and your, and your country sort of uncritically supports them, boosts them, defends them? Uh, or do you want a world order where actually people are held accountable for what they do? We don't have illegal wars of aggression. We don't have citizens viewed as kind of, you know, that's fine, collateral damage. Because we've had 25,000 people die, Michael, the over overwhelming majority of which have nothing to do with any of this. Thousands of children, women giving birth uh, to kids, having C-sections without anesthetic. They've got nothing to do with what happened on October 7th. This is collective punishment. This is a war crime, besides the charges of genocide, in my opinion. That, for me, is the big question, Michael. What kind of world order do our politicians want? Because that frightens me, the potential answer to that question, because I, I don't quite know anymore. Let's go on to our next story, of course, very much related. The International Court of Justice has delivered a judgment that vindicates South Africa in their case accusing Israel of genocide. The world's top court has concluded in a preliminary verdict that there's a plausible case Israel are committing genocide, that Palestinians in Gaza are at immediate risk of genocide, and that Israel should immediately act to protect Palestinian lives. Now, it's a powerful verdict, and it's one that puts both Israel and its Western backers to shame. For example, when South Africa first brought the case against Israel, this was the view of the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. We believe the submission against Israel to the International Court of Justice distracts the world from all of these important efforts. And moreover, the charge of genocide is meritless. The charge of genocide is meritless, right? Very, very dismissive. You know, some people interpreted that as being a bit racist. You know, you're just saying, oh, these South African lawyers, they're just, you know, giving this pile of papers. It doesn't make any sense. It's completely meritless, ridiculous, so, so dismissive. Now, the International Court of Justice haven't ruled that Israel is guilty of, of genocide. That's for the merit part of, of the case. So that will be much further down the line. But in this preliminary phase of, of, of the case, one thing they have definitively said is that this is not meritless. They have said South Africa is putting forward important arguments. They've given important evidence, which means that there's a plausible case that genocide has been committed by Israel. That is the opposite of a meritless case, the opposite of a meritless case. So the United States here should feel absolutely humiliated. They're not alone, of course. The role of the US Secretary of State is the same as that of the Foreign Secretary in the UK. Um, and two weeks ago, our Foreign Secretary took a similar stance to Blinken 
Do you agree with the South Africans that Israel has a case to answer before the International Court of Justice? No, I absolutely don't. I think the South African action is, is wrong. I think it's unhelpful. I think it shouldn't be happening. Now, of course, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but they are talking here about genocide. They're taking this um, case on, on the basis of genocide. And, you know, to prove that, you've got to improve, you've got to prove that there, there was intent. Now, you know, I take the view that, that Israel is acting in self-defense after the appalling attack on the 7th of October. But even if you take a different view to my view, um, to look at Israel, a democracy, a country with the rule of law, a country with armed forces that are committed to obeying the rule of law, to say that they have, that that country, that leadership, that armed forces, that they have the intent to commit genocide, I think that is nonsense. I think that's wrong. But, and I, I, I but you can't know that. You can only judge on the basis of what they've done. Yeah, you can judge. You, you can judge, though, on the basis of what they have done and how they've acted and why they're acting. And to say there's an intent to commit genocide, I do believe that's wrong. Right. Now, that was, I think, even more offensive than Blinken's argument, right? Blinken called it meritless. David Cameron called it nonsense. He's saying what the South Africans are putting forward here is nonsense. And his argument as to why it's nonsense is just so legally illiterate, right? He's saying, oh, they couldn't possibly be committing genocide because they're a democracy like us. Right. That's completely irrelevant. Right? You, you'll notice that nowhere in the ruling from the International Court of Justice that they say, well, we have taken into account that they're a, a, a democracy and so therefore they might not be committing genocide. That's, it, it's a complete non sequitur. Right? It, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to say that. I mean, he's, he's basically just using different words to say they're an ally of ours. So it would, of course they can't be committing genocide or of course I'm not going to admit they might be committing genocide. They've got meritless from... Anthony Blinken, we got nonsense from David Cameron, two assessments which are just fundamentally trashed by the International Court of Justice who have said this is a plausible case of genocide, i.e. this case has a lot of merit, right? We're not ready to judge whether genocide is taking place, but this is an important case. What South Africa have put together is persuasive, right? We're not yet persuaded to the extent that we're willing to, you know, say genocide, yes or no, but we're persuaded enough that, you know, this needs to be um, a priority of when it comes to the world's attention and that we are going to try Israel for genocide, right? Of course, one of the most vociferous defenders of Israel in the ICJ case has been the Germans. While the hearings were underway, their vice chancellor and minister for economic affairs visited Israel and said this, my personal and political opinion is that one can criticize the Israeli military for using harsh measures in the Gaza Strip. However, that does not constitute genocide. Those who would commit genocide or desire to do so, if given the opportunity, are Hamas. The annihilation of the State of Israel is on their agenda. So we can understand the slogan from the river to the sea as not meaning that Jews should leave Israel by boat, but as an extinction fantasy. Accusing Israel of genocide is a complete distortion of victims and perpetrators in my view, and it is just wrong. It's just wrong, right? It is a complete distortion. Now, the ICJ, again, they haven't said Israel yet is guilty of genocide, but they, they have not said it's a distortion of reality to suggest they are. They said it's plausible that Israel is committing genocide. Also, there's just the sort of immaturity of Western politicians. He's asked, is your ally committing genocide against a people, right? Are, are they... Um, creating conditions where life becomes impossible, right? They've killed 25,000 people. All he can talk about is a chant. Oh, I don't really want to talk about 25,000 people dying or the possibility that a genocide is taking place conducted by our ally. I want to talk about a chant that some people um, might be singing in Western capitals, right? It's just completely, completely juvenile, I think. Um, Germany actually has gone further in some ways than the United States and the UK because they have said they will intervene on the side of Israel at the International Court of Justice. So that means that as the case progresses, so it, once they go on to the merits of the case, um, German lawyers um, will give statements at the court. Um, and how this works is they sort of, they'll be giving a case as to how the Genocide Convention should be interpreted, but they will be doing it in such a way, they've said explicitly, so as to support Israel's arguments. Finally, Germany, with its particularly grim history, isn't the only EU country that jumped to Israel's defence when South Africa launched the case, the French foreign minister told Parliament this, accusing the Jewish state of genocide crosses a moral threshold. The notion of genocide cannot be exploited 
for political ends. Again, completely trashed by the ruling from the ICJ. The ICJ did not say, oh, this is a politically manipulated case. They said this is a seriously put argument and we are incredibly worried that genocide is taking place and we will continue this case accordingly. Um, Aaron, the Americans, the British, the Germans and the French all publicly trashed South Africa's case at the ICJ. How humiliated should they feel now that the court has ruled that South Africa has a good case and Israel um, has a case to answer? It's like living in an alternative reality. Seeing Habeck, the German foreign minister, saying what he's saying. Um, Annalise Baerbock, his, his colleague in the Green Party, says similar things. Schultz, the German, German uh, chancellor, says similar things. Um, it is like living in a parallel reality. Uh, German, German politics right now, Germany's political class, is a shit show. It's a disaster area for so many reasons, from falling living standards to the collapse of the automotive industry, energy poverty, recession, uh, and foreign policy. It's a disaster. It is a disaster. Uh, and that man is front of the queue. And I, I frankly cannot wait for him to be booted out of office because the Greens are going to have an absolutely catastrophic election. Uh, and sadly, that's going to benefit the, the AFD, the CDU. Uh, but the, the truth is, this man, when it comes to foreign policy, is, is, is literally literally no different. If anything, possibly worse, actually, uh, in so much as it's providing a, a quote-unquote progressive veneer to German foreign policy. Absolutely extraordinary that a country like Germany, responsible for the greatest genocide in contemporary history, can talk with such moral certainty about this in his nice, warm house in Berlin or Dusseldorf or the he where, where, wherever the hell he lives, with his nice Siemens kitchen appliances and his central heating, he's saying that women who are dying in childbirth don't matter. They don't matter because they're Palestinians, they're Arabs. That's the truth of the matter. If they were Europeans, he would be, you know, he would be the first to say this is abominable. If they were Ukrainian, he'd say the country needs to rearm. We need to spend hundreds of billions rearming. We need to redirect our entire national economy to address this uh, atrocity. The Palestinians, so, you know, uh, less important. Uh, Cameron, uh, Blinken, you know, what we're seeing actually across the, the piece there, I think, is the complete evaporation um, of, of what might be called, and often it's been a bit of a joke, a rules-based international order, which has been overseen and policed by Western Europe and the United States really since 1945, partly in combination with USSR until 1989. Um, but we are now seeing the complete evaporation, the evisceration of it, uh, both morally, the entire world sees this thing as a joke now, right? And you might not see that reflected in, in the press in this country, but look, two thirds of the world are in global South countries who completely disagree with what these guys are saying. From China to Indonesia uh, to Latin America, it's quite obvious to me that Western Europe and the United States has lost, is losing. Uh, any kind of semblance of global leadership, certainly ethical leadership on these kinds of things. And, and the people that best benefit from this, as I've repeatedly said, are the Russians and the Chinese. You know, if China seeks to occupy and quote unquote, take back Taiwan, there's absolutely no moral basis on which um, the Americans, the British, the French, the Germans can criticize that, equally with regards to what Russia's done in Ukraine. Clear double standard at work. How can you argue against one and not the other? Defend one, and castigate the other. You clearly can't. So I think really you've just offered in brief a series of clips which show the, um, the demolition of the, the rules-based international order, Western credibility on these kinds of issues. Uh, but also, and I mean, this is just an aside, you're looking at the, you know, the, the Boston Celtics. You're looking at an all-star team with regards to historical genocide. The US, the UK, France, Germany. Uh, you might say that's in the past and so on and so forth. But it's a matter of fact, the world's greatest genocides in you know, sort of living, recorded memory in, the, in recent centuries. Uh, we could go back a bit further to obviously the Spanish and South America and so on. But the great genocides of recent centuries, the Herero in, in Africa with regards to the Germans, uh, the French in a bunch of places, some might say there was genocidal kind of intent with regards to Algeria. Uh, the British in Australasia, Tasmania particularly, there was a genocide. It's the first recorded real genocide of modernity is the British in, in, in Tasmania. You know, that's actually one of, the, one of the first sort of instances where we can even conceive of the idea of a genocide 
purposely affected in modern history. The idea that these states are calling out South Africa, of all countries, uh, is, is striking, isn't it? Um, and I know for people, again, watching, listening to this, principally in Britain, principally in North America, we have some people, of course, in Australia and Ireland too watching us, uh, it might seem like you're being gaslit on this issue. But it's no coincidence, I think, that precisely the countries responsible for these abominable acts in, in recent centuries, and it is history, I'm not saying people today should be held responsible for things that happened in the past, but I don't think it's a coincidence that the precise countries responsible for that are unwilling to call something similar out in real time when it's happening on their watch. You know, we do not have a rules-based international order. We need to be perfectly honest about this. Since 1945, the institutions, broadly speaking, that we all have to live with, from the World Bank to the IMF, um, have broadly been an extension of US power. The ICJ is something of an exception. That's why the US will never allow one of its people to be tried there. There's something called, I think, the Hague Invasion Act is the short term, uh, short sort of form uh, term for it, which is that if a US national has ever tried um, in, in the international criminal courts, uh, the US will literally invade the Hague. Um, so this is something of an exception in sort of the global multilateral architecture. Uh, but whether it's the UN Security Council, the World Bank, the IMF, these are all really expressions of imperial power, uh, particularly from the US, which of course assumed that role of leadership with regards to global empire from the Europeans after 1945. So ridiculous, bizarre, absurd, but it will all have enormous consequences for how seriously these countries are taken by the rest of the planet, and I mean billions of people, uh, for the rest of the century, and that is not trivial. The Hague um, Invasion Act is actually in response to the International Criminal Court. So the International Court is very confusing. International Court of Justice is where states can, I, I know you know this, Aaron, this is sort of for, for the audience, the International Criminal Court, where you've got states can take states to, to court. So it's kind of the, it's similar to a civil court here. So it's, it's the, the, the judges are adjudicating between two parties, in this case, obviously, Israel and South Africa. The International Criminal Court is more like our criminal courts, right? So you have a prosecution, and there is a prosecutor at the ICC, and they can criminally try individuals. Um, and the United States has said if, if, if an American is ever tried by the ICC, they can invade the Hague. Um, the Americans, of course, haven't signed up to the ICC. The ICJ, um, many more countries have, have signed up to, I think maybe all of them, because it's, it's an arm of the United Nations. We'll be returning to Gaza at the end of our stream, so stay tuned. And we do have um, one unrelated story, well, somewhat unrelated. If you've been on social media this week, you'll have seen tons of people talking about conscription and being called up to fight a war. Now, it's a debate that was sparked by an intervention from the head of the British Army, who said on Wednesday that the British public need to be prepared to be called up for war. General Sir Patrick Sanders said the people of the UK are a pre-war generation who must be ready to fight Russia. The general is taking inspiration from Sweden, where military service has been reintroduced for some young people, though the majority in Sweden will take part in a civil citizen service, doing civilian tasks. Um, the Guardian writes this. During the speech in London, the army chief said the UK needed to broadly follow Stockholm's example and take preparatory steps to enable placing our societies on a war footing. Such action was not merely desirable, but essential, he added. The foundations for national mobilization could not be confined to countries neighboring or close to Russia. And as a result, ordinary people in the UK would be forced to join the UK's 74,000 full-time regular army to see off an active threat to mainland Europe. He said, quote, we will not be immune. And as the pre-war generation, we must similarly prepare. And that is a whole of nation undertaking. Ukraine brutally illustrates that regular armies start wars. Citizen armies win them. I mean, I suppose it is an interesting argument that regular armies start wars, citizen armies win them. I mean, it's sort of the story of counterinsurgency, really, isn't it? You've got a professional army from a, a Western country of paid-up soldiers, and then in um, the, the country they're in, in, invading, people are really passionate about this. And it's quite difficult for those paid-up soldiers to, to beat them because they don't have the same you know, commitment to victory. Um, Downing Street has thankfully poured cold water on the idea of reintroducing military service or conscription, um, but former chair of the Defence Select Committee, Tobias Elwood, has made more positive noises about the army head's comments. 
head of the British Army, one of the most cerebral thinkers that we've got, a strategist, we need to listen and listen carefully. Uh, we've been too complacent. I think I've said this many times with you. What's coming over the horizon should shock us. It should worry us. And we are not prepared. We've had a couple of decades, three decades or so since the Cold War. Life has gone well. It's now going to get more difficult as authoritarian states exploit our timidity, our perhaps reluctance to really put fires out. And the best example of that is uh, a democracy on the, on the uh, corner of Eastern Europe that in its third year is now uh, in conflict and we've not resolved that. So Patrick Saunders is saying, prepare for what's coming over the horizon. There is a 1939 feel to the world right now. These authoritarian states are rearming. There's a risk averseness about uh, the West in wanting to deal with that. And uh, institutions, global institutions such as the United Nations, um, aren't able to uh, hold these errant nations to account. In fact, the UN, I'd go further, is reaching its League of Nations moment unless it's reformed. So that's where the world is heading. We need to wake up to that. There's a mindset now of this era of insecurity uh, that uh, we're heading towards, and, but we're still on a peacetime defence budget of just 2%. That does need to change. And the Red Sea is a great example that if you don't step forward, if, you don't, uh, if you're not robust in dealing with those that are testing the, 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 uh, the envelope, um, it will be our uh, weakness will be exploited and it will affect our economy. The Red Sea is, of course, uh, an example of how allowing a genocide to take place, or according to the International Court of Justice, a potential genocide to take place, tends to have some geopolitical consequences, right? If you're talking about the undermining of the United Nations, perhaps Tobias Elwood should talk to the leader of his party who's given... Israel essentially unconditional backing in their deadly war, their murderous war on Gaza. Now, I think it's safe to say um, this proposal for conscription or national service won't be in any manifestos at the next general election, but at least one young person is keen. Ryan Mark Parsons is a former star on The Apprentice, and in this Good Morning Britain clip, he is debating former Marine Craig Ainsworth. A lot of people in my generation would definitely be up for it. I think it's a great idea. I think national service should come back. And I think it should be reminiscent to peacetime national service in 1949, where we were conscripting 18, uh, 17 to 21-year-olds. And they were serving 18 months in the armed services. Even look at Sweden. They've got the defense service out there. I think we should look to countries like Sweden as an example. I'm, I'm done with yeah. whiny young people that they're so weak and pathetic nowadays, they're so woke, yeah. they're so, they're so yeah. snowflakey, they need to step up. And I would like to be an example of that. I like to be I a understand what you're saying there now, but you have to also people. think as well, when's the last time that Sweden was invading countries on the scale that we do or the US? But you've got, you've got likely, if you're talking a... about a national, if you're talking about securing our borders, again, absolutely. But if we're talking about conscripting people to send off to Russia or miles, miles from home, okay. it's a totally different there's thing. There's a resurgent threat. There's an existential mm. threat in Europe. We've got the likes of Russia, communist and fascist powers in North Korea and China. We need to be prepared. And it's like General Sanders said. Anything? Have you ever done anything in the past? Have you ever done any sort of... Uh, CCF, this is yeah. It, yeah. We're, no, we're not if talking I, about I, summer camp. We're talking about I'm, real I'm, war I'm, here. It's a totally different thing. It's not a summer camp to build confidence or whatever. If people are looking for the opportunity to join and fight for the country, they're, they're desperate for people right now. We can go after the show would straight you, down to the careers Would you apply office. now to the army as it is? I, would, I wouldn't apply now if I had a choice. But well, if, then, why not? Why, but why not? But when, when we're talking about conscription. National service, yeah. Yeah, national service, which is different to a prerogative. But if I were given a choice, I'm doing what I'm doing now. But if I had to, then absolutely I would. Uh, and as General, as General Sanders said, I just said again, regular armies start wars, citizen armies win wars. If I had a choice, I'd do what I'm doing now, which is looking like a right wanker on morning TV. Uh, you had the, the kid from The Apprentice in favour of everyone joining the army, the guy who's actually been in the army saying, uh, maybe calm down a little bit, kid as I called him, Lance Corporal Hairspray, reporting for duty. You know, I don't think your Vidal Sassoon Hairspray will be uh, with you in the trenches when you're fighting uh, in, what, Moldova, Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan. I don't know where you plan to be deployed. Uh, look, these people, are, these people are lunatics, right? We've just seen a series of lunatics from Tobias Elwood to that, that young man speaking at the end. Elwood, by the way, is just a fantasist. He lives in an alternative reality. Um, we are now facing these threats. We have to have conscription. By the way, we ended national service in this country in 1960. 
right? The Soviet Union didn't collapse until 1989-1990. So we had 30 years of a USSR, a global superpower with nuclear arms, could project immeasurably more force than the Russian army can today. It, it was literally occupying loads of countries. Forget it was at war with Ukraine. It had Ukraine was part of it. Uh, Poland was a favorable country, all the way through to East Germany was a political satellite of the USSR. Even under that set of conditions, we didn't have national service. We actually got rid of national service. But you're saying because of a war in Ukraine, um, because of the rise of China, people just now randomly say this, China. Okay, why? What, because now China, because Huawei phones are good, we now need to have national service? What, because they make good electric vehicles, we now need to have Lance Corporal hairspray? You need to explain your thinking to me. Uh, the problem is, of course, that lots of these conversations are now being mediated through two categories of people who should be nowhere near the conversation. Idiot politicians like Tobias Elwood, who, by the way, have just lost interest in sorting out this country's problems. It is so much harder to say, okay, elderly care, how do we address that? How do we have more kids? How do we resolve issues in childcare? How do we ha help housing supply? How do we restore dying high streets? Those are really hard problems to solve. You know, I talk about them all the time, but I'm the first to say that actually solving that will take lots of people, diff uh, lots of different people from lots of different angles, and actually you need to build a consensus because you know have a bare minimum of things you can agree around and, and move forward. Because no single person has all the answers. They've given up on that stuff because look, it's just so much easier, it's so much sexier to say we need to have three, four percent of GDP on military spending. By the way, procurement on defense spending in this country is a disaster. We already spend tens of billions of pounds on military procurement. We have ships in in the in the Arabian Sea. I can't remember, I think it was the Arabian, no, it was the Arabian Gulf, sorry. So the southern parts of um, Saudi Arabia, that neighborhood anyway. You know, we have ships reversing when they should be going forward. We have F-35s, which don't seem to work. We have a major aircraft carrier, which costs billions of pounds. It, it barely leaves Portsmouth. People say, well, it'll work in five years. Maybe it will. But right now, it's quite clear that there isn't value for money with regards to military procurement. The idea that, oh, well, if we just go from 2% to 3% or 4%, nobody's benefiting from that. Clearly, you need to get to the heart of what's going wrong with procurement first. Um, but it's so much easier. So we're on a war footing, we need to... Uh, and by the way, war, geopolitics is serious business. I'm not denying that. Foreign policy is serious business. Defense and security policy, serious business. But this isn't how you do it, and it's not being done seriously. And these aren't serious people. So uh, I think it is really important to look at, you know, Lance Corporal Hairspray versus a guy who was a former Marine, and, and actually somebody talking with experience saying, well, look, if you, if you really want to sign up, you know, um, Lance Corporal Hairspray, especially if you've got a university degree, I don't think this guy has, but if you do, go to Sandhurst, you can train, be a captain, earn decent money, and then, and then you know, after three years, five years, or whatever, you can leave and, and go back to Civvy Street. But Lance Corporal Hairspray appears to want to be conscripted so he can fight China. I don't think he actually believes this, by the way. I think it just means it gets him on GMB and lets him promote his little brand. And of course, then you might say, well, why are we talking about him? We're talking about him because sadly, that's how these really important conversations appear to happen in the UK right now. One more story tonight. Labour's failure to call for a ceasefire in Gaza has led to a lot of anger in Britain. And at a recent event in Stockport, Deputy Leader Angela Rayner was interrupted by protesters. Thanks, Johnny. And look, Tameside's going to save the world. That's why all three are up here. But um, the change in this country is Dragging away protesters, you know, fine, right? You're interrupting an event. You know, it's, it's important that people have the right to make their point, but you can see why they're taken away so that the event can continue. Dragging away someone who is holding up photographs of family members who have been killed, you know, presumably in the past three months in a war, right? How can you stand by and let that happen? A politician is supposed to be someone who's politically aware, you know, who, who is aware of what's going on around them, of sort of the, the significance of, uh, of events such as that. You know, if, if you were remotely competent and or empathetic, you would say, okay, no, do not drag this guy away. 
you know, I would have preferred you to have come up to me after the event, but this is someone who has lost family um, in, in Gaza. I'm sure we'll disagree on some things, but clearly you do have a, a, a right to talk. But they just stand there while there is a security guard dragging out someone who is showing a room full of people pictures of his dead family, right? It's just mind-blowing, right? What has happened to these people? Extraordinary. And like you say, um, Angela Rayner could have responded by saying, look, I don't think this is the right way to, to go about things, but I totally understand your pain. And the reality is that the Labour government will do more to avert this kind of suffering than the Conservatives will. You might not like what we're saying in opposition, but we have to look like a credible government, but we will stand for international law and we'll stand for you know peace in that part of the world as quickly as possible. You could finesse it. You could, even if it's bullshit, that's what you would like to say. If you're a politician, that's what you're meant to do. Um, and there's some truth to it, obviously. Uh, Labour's position is marginally better than the Conservative Party on this stuff. Although there's a range of opinion in the Conservative Party too, of course. So, you know, uh, Cameron is a lot better than somebody like Suella Braverman, what they're saying. You know, Suella Braverman has own, absolutely entirely uncritical support for Israel. Uncritical. You know, Israel could oversee too many people going to Egypt. She would say, no problem, I think. Cameron is somewhat different. So there's a there's a spectrum of opinion here, and I think Labour could point to that. But I saw one tweet today, Michael, which said that Labour's already had their Iraq war moment. You know, the, the Sama's Labour's already had their Iraq war moment, and they failed the test. I don't think it's quite that bad, but I also don't think they recognise the scale of the problem. You talk to any Labour candidate, councillor, um, even MP, if they're being honest, of course, it's harder to access MPs, talk to any of them. You say, when you canvass, how big is this an issue on the doorstep? with your voters. And they'll tell you it's pretty damn bad. It's pretty damn bad. Does that mean lots of MPs will lose their seats because of it? Well, not really, because there's not an alternative. Many councillors will. And many prospective candidates won't win because of it. Um, and, and many people will have smaller majorities than they otherwise should do. And that, Michael, does get through. You know, when you have right-wing Labour councillors saying, I will lose my seat in May because of this. Luke Akehurst, I know you're a paid lobbyist, uh, for the interests of Israel, but please, I don't want to no longer be a councillor anymore. That stuff does cut through. Uh, so on the one hand, you know, they're going to have to do better than this, Labour, right? Uh, and on the other hand, if they don't, it's it's a real problem for them because that, that response you saw there from Rayner is why some of the people sitting there will be local Labour councillors. They will be losing their positions because of this response and the absence of a better one. Um, you want to run the country You've got to be honest and clear about how you will do things better. And I wrote a tweet about this, and I sincerely believe this, Michael. I sincerely believe Prime Minister Keir Starmer, and I prefer Labour to the Tories. I will vote for Labour over the Tories every day of the week. Although, of course, how you vote should depend on who your candidates are, where you are, etc. But Labour versus Tories, I will vote for Labour every day of the week. But I think it's pretty clear, to me at least, that Keir Starmer is far more likely to take us into a mad um, war uh, than Rishi Sunak. Precisely because he feels he has something to prove and because it would mean some headlines about owning the left, the end of Corbynism, as if that's more important than averting casualties uh, with regards to overseas conflicts. We lost almost 500 people in Afghanistan. You know, put aside what happened to the poor Afghan people. Britain lost 500 people in Afghanistan. We spent tens of billions of pounds for Tony Blair's mad war in Afghanistan. What do we get? Okay, well, actually, the major legacy was uh, an increase globally of opium production. That's what we paid for. That's what almost 500 people died for. I'm not going to sugarcoat it because as journalists, that's not our job. Our job is to be honest, to relay factual information. Uh, and I worry, Michael, that frankly, Kirstama's Labour would, would do the exact same thing. The last two mad conflicts this, this country was in, Iraq and Afghanistan, was under a Labour government. I don't think it's implausible it happens again. I think it's unlikely, partly because we simply can no longer afford those kinds of escapades, uh, but I don't think it's implausible. And actually, if we were to see a repeat of something like Libya, not quite as bad, but generating horrific global consequences, in many ways as bad as Iraq, what happened in Libya, uh, I think actually, again, that's more likely under Keir Starmer than under... Um, Rishi Sunak. And I don't say that lightly. That's a really important consideration. I've seen some people sort of in the comments saying, what was the woman shouting in that clip? Now, she was shouting, uh, sort of, you, you call yourself a feminist, Angela Rayner, and then sort of talking about the dire situation that women are in, in in Gaza. That clip does, you know, for clarity, go on for a, sort of another minute or so. There were sort of three people that intervened. We just showed you that much of it because I thought it was that, you know, the booting out of the guy with those pictures of his family that was most sort of powerful and actually most outrageous when it comes to the response um, from from the security and the lack of response 
from the Labour politicians on stage. And standing next to Angela Rayner on stage was Jonathan Reynolds. Now, he's Shadow Business Secretary and a Vice Chair of Labour Friends of Israel. And these are some other members of that group with Israeli President Isaac Herzog. Now, the picture was taken just two weeks ago when Margaret Hodge, Ruth Smith, Christian Wakeford and some other Labour MPs visited Israel to express their support for the war. Well, their pal, Isaac, came up in the International Court of Justice today as an example of an Israeli leader potentially encouraging genocide. On 12 October 2023, Mr. Isaac Herzog, President of Israel, stated, referring to Gaza, I quote, We are working, operating militarily according to rules of international law, unequivocally. It is an entire nation out there that is responsible. It is not true, this rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved. It is absolutely not true. They could have risen up. They could have fought against that evil regime which took over Gaza in a coup d'etat. But we are at war. We are at war. We are at war. We are defending our homes. We are protecting our homes. That's the truth. And when a nation protects its home, it fights. And we will fight until we break their backbone. End of quote. That was a quote from Isaac Herzog being read out in the International Court of Justice, so the highest court in the world, really, um, as an example of someone using potentially genocidal rhetoric. Now people have that reference. I want you to sort of look again at the grins on the faces of these Labour MPs who decided that they would take this sort of happy photo with the President of Israel, Isaac Herzog. So you can see Ruth Smith, you can see Margaret Hodge, Christian Wakeford, all really, really delighted to be there. Oh, what a nice jolly we're having in Israel. We're just here to express our support for Israel, yada, yada, yada. Just days before the man they're having that sort of smiley photo with had used what the International Court of Justice now recognizes as potentially genocidal rhetoric about the Palestinian people. Like Labour MPs, oh, we're here to support Israel. La, da, 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 da. How nice this trip. It's completely, completely disgusting how these people cannot be completely ashamed of themselves. Again, imagine, right, imagine if you had a bunch of Labour MPs who, after Russia invaded Ukraine, and the ICJ with Russia actually also you know, gave a provisional ruling saying there's potential for genocide here, if after that you had a bunch of Labour MPs who took this smiling photo um, with Putin or Dmitry Medvedev, right? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what the response would be? But when it comes to Israel, it's fine for them. Hey, we're just here. Israel, this is nice. Oh, with, with this nice man, Isaac Herzog, who's just made a statement which the International Criminal International Court of Justice, sorry, recognizes potentially genocide. It's just, it's mind-blowing. You know, it makes you feel like you're losing your mind that this is seen as completely normal in respectable society in this country. They should all be ashamed. And Keir Starmer should be ashamed because he is, you know, he, he's just put Ruth Smith in the House of Lords. You know, these are people he's putting front and center in how he has remade the party there on a jolly with Isaac Herzog. Aaron, thank you for joining me tonight. Uh, lots to cover, lots of viewers tonight. Michael, my pleasure. And of course, thanks to our amazing uh, audience. I hope they all have a wonderful restorative weekend. Yep. Do come back on Monday at 6pm when we'll be live again. Um, for now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.